Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have learned about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. All right, let's pray and uh, get to work on how we talk about others. Let's go. Father, thanks for this uh, text, and we pray you would give us insight from your word. Help us to um, receive what you want to say today. And um, Lord, give us... Um, the courage to be honest, because what we're going to talk about today, all of us in this room know that gossip or slander are wrong, but we still do it. And so we need courage to look at why and to turn and repent and um, be honest before you. And so help us today um, to courageously respond to what you say to us through your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's be honest. How many of you have ever been busted saying something about somebody that you know you shouldn't have said? You have to raise your hands. Okay. So, so I have. I have. And, it, and you never forget it, do you? Where you're just like, oh my word, busted. So here's what happened to me. Um, the one time I did it, I was in college. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. The one time I got seriously busted, I was in college, and my roommate had a, a long-term relationship with this uh, his girlfriend, and they broke up. And it was it was you know fireworks. It just it was a nasty breakup, lots of emotion, and uh, he was really really torqued about the whole thing. And to make it worse, let's call her Amy. Um, Amy, after she broke up with my roommate, um, developed a very quick relationship with another guy named Andrew. 
Andrew suddenly you know, was all compassionate, was all listening. And, you know, in, in school we used to call that the rebound, right? So he was catching the rebound. And uh, so my roommate was really upset that Andrew had the audacity to kind of pick up this, this girl from the rebound. And he was mad, and so he sought my advice as to what he should do. In fact, what he wanted to do is he wanted to call Andrew out for his uh, actions. And, and I told him, no, 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 don't do that. Andrew's really not the problem here with your relationship. That, that was good advice. And then I said this, and I said, for that matter, I said, you know, a guy who would pick up a girl on a rebound like that, let's just be honest, that, that's pretty shallow, isn't it? And he said, yeah. And so he felt better, I felt wise, he walked away. <laughs> Until dinner the next day. Uh, I'm, I'm seated in the cafeteria, put my tray down, and lo and behold, Andrew, the guy I just talked about the night before, came and sat down right across from me. So I greeted him warmly, hey, Andrew, good to see you, how are you? Yeah, he wasn't so happy to see me. And... Uh, and I just began to take a, a, a bite of my shepherd's pie when he said, so I understand you think I'm shallow. And I was like, how in the world does he know that, right? <laughs> well, what had happened the night before, or the night, uh, later on that day, uh, early in that morning rather, um, my uh, roommate and his girlfriend had another argument, and Andrew came up in the argument, and then he said to her, well, I just got to tell you, Mark Rogup thinks that Andrew's shallow. I'm like, oh, God, why do you have to say that, right? And here I am busted. So he says, so I understand you think I'm shallow. And I said, yeah, I said that. And I said, shall we go for a walk? And so we got up from the cafeteria, walked outside, and I had to apologize profusely from my big mouth and what I had said and asked his forgiveness about talking about him behind his back. And I'll never forget the feeling of being seriously busted about saying something about somebody that I shouldn't have said. You see, talking about how we talk is really important because we all talk, and if we're honest, there are things in our life, the way in which we talk gets us in serious trouble, and especially in regards to how we talk about others. Now, last week we talked about the subject of our communication, our tongue. We looked at it from James chapter 3, and we saw four things. We saw first that words are important, that words really equal your maturity. In fact, if you want to be a wise man, just keep your mouth shut. Proverbs says you'll be considered intelligent and, and wise. Um, secondly, we learned that words have, can create big problems or they have, great they have great power, that small things can create huge issues in our lives. Third, we learned that words can wound, that, that the, the tongue is full of deadly poison. And then finally, we saw that words are in fact revealing, meaning that what we end up doing is revealing our spiritual inconsistency. And then also, if not as a part of our Sunday morning teaching, but as a part of Live 11, if you're part of that small group um, discussion guide, about 1,700 of you are involved in that, um, you learn that there's some questions that you could ask yourself, kind of um, communication speed bumps, if you will, to kind of slow you down. Things like, do I have the facts right? Should love cover this? Um, um, have I sought God's help? Those kind of questions. Just to really ask ourselves, is this the right thing to talk about right now? Today, we're going to dial into one aspect of how we talk, specifically about how we talk about others, or how we talk to others. And we're going to look at this from two different angles. Ephesians chapter 4 is going to give us Paul's perspective on this, as he's going to approach this subject theologically. And then we're going to look at James chapter 4, and we're going to see how James approaches it really passionately in regards to what's going on in the inside of our hearts. So two different angles, but, but two very important perspectives. And what we're going to do is ask four questions today about this matter, about how we talk about others. 
Question one is, what is the motivation? Question two, um, how should we talk to others? Third, um, what is unhelpful talk? And then fourth, where does unhelpful talk come from? So those are the four questions we're going to dial into today, and I hope this will be help in helping to prevent the kind of busted moment that I had in my life that you won't have to experience that. So first, let's look at this. So what is the motivation? We need to start going back to Ephesians chapter 4 and actually beginning in verse 1 because when Paul is talking about communication and how we talk in verses 29 to 31, he's talking about this in a subset of a broader category. In fact, in verse 1, he says this, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So there's a sense that there's a call on a believer's life. Meaning, if you've received the Lord Jesus as your Savior, if you've understood your sins, you know that you needed someone to take care of your sin, you invited Christ to control your life, you have a calling on your life. You have a, a, a new master, a new lord, a new king. This calling is how you are to live your life. And Paul says, in light of this calling, here's how I want you to live. He says, verse 2, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Clearly, there is this, this overarching sense of relationships that's in view. And then he links it with the oneness of God. Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. And in that little section, he exalts in the supremacy of God as a ruler over all things. And so the implication here is this, that when Paul talks about communication, he talks about how we talk, he's linking it to the overall rubric of God's supremacy over all things. In other words, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've committed your life to Christ, then the bottom line is that what motivates you is that God would be glorified through what you say. That what defines you as uniquely different than the rest of our world and our culture, is that your tongue is to be used for the purposes of advancing God's kingdom. Now, Paul doesn't say this just in Ephesians 4. He also says it in Colossians 3.17. Listen to this. It's a a small, simple verse. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, everything that you say needs to be under the banner of the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Titus chapter 3, Paul picks up the same concept. He says this, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And then he says this in verse 2, To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And then he gets the motivation at the end. Why? Here's why. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. So there's a ground that motivates right communication. There's a a motive that springs from the reality of who and what God is. In fact, it's this. Godly words are good words. They are the kind of words that advance the mission of God's glory. So here's the thing. I want you to think about your tongue as having the potential to advance the kingdom of God. 
That your tongue and the words that you say can be a part of God accomplishing His purpose on earth. You giving honor to Him through what you say and making much of Him. Now that seems really basic, doesn't it? I mean, that's that's almost 101 in terms of how we talk and the things that we talk about. But it's really important because you could actually study how you talk as a means to advance yourself. See, just saying nice words or learning how to talk to people can be used for self-centered purposes. Give me an example. Some of you may be familiar with this book, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. This is a 1936 edition of this book. I pulled it off my shelf and just was paging through it this week. And I found on the back 12 things he says this book will do for you. It will enable you to make friends quickly and easily. Enable you to increase your popularity. Help you win people to your way of thinking. Increase your influence, your prestige, and your ability to get things done. You know, you can use kind and gracious words not to glorify God. You can use kind and gracious words to be able to get your way. You can use harsh words to get your own way, but you can also use kind words and gentle words. And so the key is not just nice words or kind words or gentle words, but we have to be motivated in how we speak, not just by the tones we use, but by the ultimate aim, which is that we are motivated to bring glory to God. Any other motivation will end up skewing the definition of what is truly helpful with our words. For instance, it will cause some of you to be less than honest out of the fear of man. You see, there's some of us that the problem is not that we talk too much, it's that we talk too little. And someone says something and we know it's wrong, but we don't say anything. And it seems as if we're kind because we're not saying anything, but the real thing is is that you're not being kind to them, you're actually self-protecting. There's others who, in your straightforwardness, could be greatly used by God, and yet at the same time you could be overly blunt. And you do so, not because you're trying to help this person grow, but because you want to get your point across. See, the reality is, is that God-honoring words are sometimes tough, they're sometimes even painful. I'm sure you can think of scenarios in your life, I can in mine, when somebody said something to me that was really hard, in fact, it was kind of hurtful at first, and it kind of woke me up to the reality of something I needed to learn. And those hard and tough words were exactly what I needed. In the same way, kind words can be useful, or they might not be useful. Blunt words could be useful, or they might not be useful. It all depends on what the motive is for how those words are being communicated. The starting point of how we talk to others, then, is to ask ourselves what our ultimate goal really is. And we have to begin with this fundamental commitment of God. I want my mouth to honor you. I love your kingdom, and I want to use my mouth to advance your kingdom. Think of that. You could use your tongue, this little thing in your mouth, to create healing and grace in the life of somebody else, to to confront somebody on a sin issue, to help move them along in righteousness. Your mouth could be used to advance the kingdom of God. And Paul says, in light of your overall calling, walk in this calling that you've been called. In that context, he talks about how we communicate. So the motive has to be the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. Now, look at verse 29. Ephesians 4, 29. This addresses very specifically how we talk to others. And there's a little phrase that I find to be really helpful. Verse 29 says this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. 
but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. This little phrase, corrupting talk, I take this to mean a categorical term of the kind of speech that is not helpful. What does this word or this phrase, corrupting talk, mean? Well, the Greek word here is the Greek word sapros. Corrupting talk, sapros, and it means that which is rotten, that which is decaying, spoiled, or worthless. So when Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, he's saying, let no rotten words, let no spoiled words, let no decaying words come out of your mouth. Interestingly, Jesus uses this same little word, corrupting, to refer to bad fruit connected to bad trees in the context of talking about what we talk about. Listen to Luke chapter 6 and verse 43. Jesus says this, For no good tree bears bad, that's the word, corrupt fruit. Nor again does a corrupt tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. And then he goes on, verse 45, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So Jesus clearly links, clearly bad fruit, this corrupting, decaying fruit with what comes out of the mouth, that which comes out of the heart. So what Jesus is saying here, what Paul is saying here is this, that rotten words are like rotten food. They are decaying, they're spoiled, they're, they're worthless. John Piper lists four characteristics of rotten fruit that directly applies to rotten, corrupting words. Here's why this word is important. Because rotten fruit, first, doesn't nourish. Rotten fruit doesn't strengthen. It doesn't improve. It doesn't help. And and that's what rotten words um, don't do. They don't strengthen. Rotten words don't improve. Rotten words don't help. So one of the things we have to ask ourselves, if if my mouth is going to glorify God about how I talk to people, then it needs to be words that are helpful, words that improve, words that strengthen. Back to my opening illustration. It might have been helpful for me to tell Andrew directly to his face, look, bro, you're doing this thing on a rebound. This is kind of shallow. It's one thing for me to say it to him. That could be helpful. But to say it to someone else about him, not helpful. Same words, different context, different level of help. Secondly, rotten fruit will probably make you sick. So rotten fruit will be destructive if you choose to eat it in the same way that rotten words can make you sick. Sick about who you are, sick about the relationship problems that you've caused. Third, Piper says it smells bad and creates an unpleasant atmosphere. I mean, it makes sense. Rotten fruit connected to rotten words. Just put one rotten piece of fruit in the wrong place and it ruins the entire environment. You've probably experienced this in the context of a close relationship or a family dynamic where someone just said something and it immediately just felt like someone just sucked the joy right out of the room. A number of months ago, when my kids got in my car, they were like, Dad, something smells in here. And I'm like, I know. And I've been searching all over, cleaned out my car, but there was just this odor that was constantly in, in my vehicle. And finally, one day when I was cleaning out, got underneath the seat, I found that one of my kids had eaten an apple and left it in the car, and it got stuck in the corner. That explains the flies as well that went along with it, I guess. And so 
this small little apple created this, this sour smell in the context of the vehicle. In the same way, rotten words in the context of your home, your relationships, the people that you hang around with, it creates a sour environment. Fourth, it probably comes from a diseased tree. Bad fruit comes from bad trees. And now let me add a fifth one. And that is that a rotten piece of fruit affects the whole bowl. Ever had a bad apple? Spoils the whole what? Whole bunch. You have one person on a team who's got a foul attitude, a foul mouth, and negative communication. It creates this sort of environment that everyone feels free, that they can be sinful, they can be awful. Take that one person out. It's amazing how different the team will function and the dynamic will change. Take one kid out of the context of that home. and It's remarkable how the whole home environment can change. So it affects the whole bowl. So when I put all this together, I think the overall tone about how we should talk could be reflected in this. That the words that we need to use should be spiritually helpful, not needlessly hurtful. I say needlessly because sometimes it's okay for us to be hurt by the words that people say. Sometimes it's okay for us to actually hurt someone. Not to sin against them, not to be needlessly hurtful, but there are some times when the things that we say are going to be received with pain and, oh, that's hard, but I, I, I know that's for my, my, my best interest. So that our words should be spiritually helpful, not needlessly hurtful. So rather than using rotten words, our words should be nourishing, should be life-giving, should create a positive atmosphere, should be infectious in all of the right sense. And here's my question, does that characterize your speech? Are you known like that? If I were to ask your spouse, your kids, if I was to ask your best friend or the person you're dating, if I was to ask the people at your, your workplace, would, would you be known as the kind of person who has an infectious quality about how you talk in terms of raising the standard of, of righteousness and control and helpful? Do people view you as a helpful person? Do they come to you for advice? Or do people manage around you? I remember an ethics class, um, Dr. Greer used to say that X is good because X is willed by God. So the reason that something is good is because God has called it good. In the same way, words are good when they fit with the will of God. Words are good when they fit with God's will and with his heart. And the reason that this is so important to remember is because it's not enough just to be gentle. It's not enough just to be kind. It's not enough just to be nice. There's some of you who have a really nice personality, and those of us who don't have nice personalities wishes we could have nice personality like yours. But the reality is, even a nice personality, you can be nice for self-centered purposes. And in fact, gentleness, while a virtue, is not always something that should be used in the context of how we communicate. In fact, the Bible isn't often even consistent with what it says about how we are to talk. And it's this unifying factor of being motivated for God's glory and for helping in terms of spiritual helpfulness that links even the disparate concepts that are within the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. Titus 3 says this, Speak evil of no one. So speak evil of no one. And yet Paul in Titus, or in 2 Timothy 4 says, Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me. So he's speaking evil of Demas. Or, here's another example, Second Timothy 2, the Lord's servant must be kind to everyone, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And yet Jesus, when talking to the Pharisees, said, you blind guide, you serpents, you brood of vipers. Or James chapter 3, Wisdom that is from above is first peaceable, gentle, open to reason, and full of mercy. 
And yet Titus 1 says, rebuke them sharply. See, the fact of the matter is there's lots of different kinds of words that need to be used when we talk to other people. In fact, one of the challenges of pastoral ministry is figuring out which kind of word you use for different kinds of people. Mark Driscoll, reflecting on this, says that pastors, with the very task of how they use their words, must use communication in a variety of contexts, which include feeding the sheep, rebuking the swine, shooting the wolves, and beating the dogs. (laughs) And so... The reality is different words for different contexts, different words for different environments. In fact, that word corrupting, back to no corrupting talk, it means unserviceable. It means unuseful. So our words, friends, need to be useful. Useful in terms of helping people to glorify and honor God. Useful in helping them to grow. So the call here is not just to be kind and gentle. It's also at times to be blunt and sharp and honest. It's to be considerate. It's to ask ourselves continually, what is my motive for saying this? Am I using the right tones that help move this person to godliness? Do I have, do I really have their best interest in mind? Are my words spiritually helpful and not needlessly hurtful? So, The next question then is, so what are unhelpful words? Well, gratefully, Ephesians 4 and a number of other passages lists a series of sins that reflect how we ought not to talk and how we ought not to communicate. So here's 13 of them. You ready? The crazy thing about this list is none of these will surprise you, and yet we still do them. None of you are going to walk away today and go, I didn't know anger was wrong. I didn't know I was supposed to gossip, but we still do it. And so as we go through this list, I just want you to realize what it is that the Bible is talking about. Bitterness is a smoldering resentment. It's, it's grudge keeping. It's, um, it's a spirit of irritability with a particular person. It's when your kids hand you the phone and say, Mom, it's June. And you're like, oh, you don't even know what she's going to say. Or you get an email from John. Oh, here it comes. And you just, you're expecting the next same song, second verse, a little bit louder, a little bit worse could be wrath. Wrath is the blow-up, strong passion, um, communicating that you're, you're angry. Anger is a settled, smoldering, determined anger. It's this deep-seated resentment, again, reflected in our words. Clamor. Clamor is just um, shouting, outright strife. It's, it's, it's a public uh, outburst. It's what kids do. They fight. So clamoring is. A slander is the uh, defamation of someone's um, character. It, it comes from a, a bitter heart. It's where you are attempting to undercut them. And, and by the way, you can do this with more than just words. Some of you do it this way. I'm not saying a word. <laughs> and you didn't need to. Others of you can do it just with simply a tonal reflection. Someone says something, you go, mm-hmm. Right? And that's it. That's all you got to do. Mm-hmm. A wag of the head, uh-huh, and you can just, all you need to do is just that slight little twist, and slander has taken place. Malice. Malice is a general term for evil. It is a um, speaking in a way that's designed to bring someone harm. I wish that was it, but the Bible goes on even further. It lists, in Ephesians 5, filthiness. Talk that is um, degrading or disgraceful. Talk that is dirty particularly in regards to sexuality. This is the predominant language in our culture from 8 o'clock till 11 o'clock on primetime TV. 
Foolish talking. Two Greek words put together. Moro and logia. Moros meaning stupid. Logos meaning word. This is the worthless, silly, look at me talk. You know anybody like this? Who's like this? In the midst of a public gathering with some friends. They just talk and talk and talk. They always have a story to tell. And it's always, look at me. They, they use words to draw the spotlight to themselves. They laugh loudly. They tell stories loudly. It's all about them. It's foolish talk. And every once in a while, you just want to tell your friend, hey, shh. <laughs> Not the only one in the room. Crude joking. When someone turns the innocent into obscene or innuendo and double meaning. You ever had this? You say something and someone takes what you say and then they turn it around and make it like you were saying something more than what you were saying? This coarse joking. Proverbs 11 and Proverbs 26 adds two other ones. Gossip. What is this? I love Tim Keller's definition. He says gossip is saying something behind someone's back that you'd never say to their face. Flattery is saying something to someone's face that you'd never say behind their back. That's really helpful. So gossip is saying something behind their back that I'd never say to their face, but flattery is saying something to your face that I'd never say when you're not in the room. Proverbs indicates that both of these, gossip and flattery, need to go. James 4, James 5 gives us two additional ones. Speaking evil, which is to belittle, to mock. Any mockers? Oh, dangerous dangerous words to hurt to harm to attack a person's motive or their character and then finally is the notion of grumbling a more subtle speaking against when a person um, hints at the flaws of the others or um, areas of disagreement with tones or body language or or innuendo you look at the list and and none of these are surprising are they i mean you know that these things ought not to be But the real problem is even though they're so ugly, we still do them. A conversation can be going along so well, and then suddenly with one small word, one small tone, the whole environment changes. It goes from nice to nasty in an instant. And what's more, friends, is we know better. Not just because the Bible tells us that these things are wrong. We know what it's like to have personally experienced the pain of these things. We've been slandered. But we still slander. We, we've, we've been grumbled against, and yet we still grumble about others. We swore that we wouldn't blow up like Dad did growing up, but here you are repeating the same things. We know what happens when we try to be funny at the party, but we still do it. Our mouths get us in all kinds of trouble, and the challenge is, is that while we are creating these words and these environments, they come from a source within the heart. So what we say is just the the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. So, final question is, where do hurtful words come from? This is where James helps us. So this is all the stuff that has to go. The question then is, where does all of this stuff come from? Look at James chapter 4 and verse one, James addresses from a passion perspective where these sinful words, this sinful communication develops. He asks the question in verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, this is a really important verse friends, that your passions are at war within you? In other words, 
These words that come out, they, they come out not just of the heart, but in the heart are these passions, these desires, things that you want, things that you desire, the way that things should be, the, the rules, so to speak, of how life should be. And when your passions and your desires and, and, and your longings are frustrated, then words come out in an attempt for you to take control over a world that isn't like you want it. James says you desire, you don't have, so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So James drives us now to the core of the real problem about why we talk about others. It's not just that the words that we use are a problem. It's not just that the heart is the problem. It goes even deeper than that. It's the very thing that we desire. That's the essence of the problem. So James helps us in giving us an understanding of not only the issue of fights and quarrels, but now he drives it down deep into the context of the motivations and the passions of our hearts. And what he finds is this, is that the quarrels and fights are just the external manifestations of our self-centered desires, our self-centered wants, and what we are really passionate about. So... The bad news is, is what we talk about in terms of talking about others is the least of the, is, is really the, the, the least bit important part of the problem. The real issue is the desire going on inside this internal war that's taking place within the heart of every person. James identifies that there are desires within our hearts, and when those desires are not met according to our rules, our plans, our timelines, sinful actions and words come out. So the key It's not just to change what you talk about. The key is to change the desires on the inside. So sinful words come from frustrated passions. For example, we think that we don't deserve to be hurt, and so we get bitter. We don't like being hindered. We want things our way, so we get angry. We get tired of dealing with certain people, so we slowly burn about them. We don't want to lose an argument, so we shout. We don't want certain per- people to get away with it, so we slander them. We, we want other people to think better of us, so we gossip about others. We want people to think we're nice, so we flatter them. We think we're better than others, so we speak evil against other people. We think we do a better job, so we grumble. And lurking underneath the surface of all of this is this underworld of passions and desires and the battle to control the mouth starts with honestly looking at what's going on in terms of the desire. Why are you speaking evil? Why are you saying bitter words? Why are you grumbling? And what does it say about which kingdom you are really living for? You see, that's why this motivation thing is so key. Because if you're motivated by the glory of God and the advancement of His kingdom, then it changes not only what you say, it changes what you want and what you desire. You see, for for some, the real problem isn't just saying, God, help me control my mouth. It's, It's more fundamental. It's saying, God, would you give me different desires? Why is it that I have to have my own way? Why is it that I get so angry? Why is it that it just frustrates me to no end that they get away with it instead of just having different desires that can rely on who and what God is? Paul Tripp says this about these desires. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. I tend to live in this claustrophobic confines of my own self-defined world. 
I was not designed to live that way. I was created to live in the big sky country of the glory of the kingdom of God with expansive borders beyond anything I could imagine or want for myself. My life was structured to be directed not so much by my desire for me, but by the desires of another for me. But I not only want to live in my little kingdom, I want to co-opt the people around me into service of my kingdom. Now, to make that point clear, Tripp gives an illustration that I think is blistering. He says, let me take you on an all-too-typical to an all too typical family scene. It's 10.30 at night, and the children you put to bed at 9 are now fighting in their beds. You start down the hallway, feet heavy on the floorboards. You're probably not saying, thank you, Jesus, for this wonderful opportunity, part of the work of your kingdom. I so love redemption. I love this opportunity to be part of what you are doing. Instead, you are probably saying, they're dead. And you burst into your children's room and say, Do you know what my day's been like? Do you have any idea what I do? I don't ask for much, just children from earth. Why, I bought every shred of clothes you put on that back of yours. I bought every morsel of food you put in that big mouth of yours. I made your Christmases happy. And as you are ranting, do you think that your children are saying, My, this is helpful. Here, here is a person of distinct wisdom. I'm so glad that he came into my room. I think I'm seeing my heart. No, your children gain little from this encounter and can't wait until you get out of their room. And now, he writes, let's examine the emotion that is propelling you at that moment. You're not angry because your children have broken the laws of God's kingdom. If you were, that righteous anger would go in a very different direction. It would be the anger of grace, the anger of wisdom, the anger of instruction, and the anger of correction. No, you're angry because your children have broken the laws of your kingdom, and in your kingdom there shall be no parenting after 10 o'clock p.m. Ouch. That's where we live, folks. And the reality is hurtful words come from this commitment. There will be no parenting after 10. And that's what we want. That's what we desire. And sinful words then come out. You change the rule and you'll change the words. So being careful what we say about others requires that we have a different motivation, friends. It requires that we're motivated by the glory of God. That we are deathly afraid of our sinful passions and where they could take us. And that we realize with determined resolve that with God's help, we're not going to be hurtful. Instead, we're going to help people. That our our words are going to move people toward grace. That under the banner of the Lordship of Christ, that our commitment is that we are going to use words that fit with God's plan. We're going to use words that fit with His will. We're going to use words that move people to want to obey Him. Words that in the end are helpful and not hurtful. And think what would happen if every follower of Jesus determined that for the next year of their life, they were only going to use words that were helpful in the advancement of God's kingdom. Can you imagine what would happen? And in the reverse, imagine the destruction that happens when people who name the name of Christ blow it by letting their sinful passions get the best of them and they use hurtful words rather than helpful words. Friends, this has got to change. May God help us to do so. Father, we ask you to change our passions and our desires. 
Oh, how we need you. All of us know these things that we've talked about today are wrong, yet we still do them. We do them in the context of our most intimate, close relationships, friends and spouse and kids. And we do this at work. And we just we need a spiritual reset today for you to remind us of where our wrong passions could go. We repent and turn from sinful desires, desires to be our own God, our own kingdom. So help us, Lord. In fact, in just a few moments, we're going to start talking again. And we need your help to not let the kingdom of self rule the day. Give us mercy, Lord. And thank you that you, Jesus, can change the desires. You can change the want in the heart of a man or a woman. And so I pray you do that today for your glory and for the good of your church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.